This is Aspiring Altruists, the show where you'll hear the stories of young professionals in the nonprofit sector working to change the world. We'll dive into their backgrounds, hear about the work they do, and ultimately learn how they got to where they are and how you can do the same. With the nonprofit sector comprising one of the largest U.S. workforces by tackling the world's biggest problems across nine major categories, you may just hear something that could change your life, and through it, the lives of countless others. Today's episode features a young woman with a passion for creating real policy change, Liddy Ballard. Liddy is a state policy manager at Brady, an organization that works across Congress, courts, and communities to end America's gun violence epidemic. As someone with a passion for attacking the root causes rather than the symptoms of gun violence and is emboldened every time a preventable mass shooting event occurs, Liddy shares with us about what it's like to fight back against one of the biggest lobbying efforts in the nation, what people like you can do to get involved, how her early career experience led to where she is today, and more. And with that, let's hear from Liddy. So, Liddy, can you tell the listeners a bit about the role that you're in and the organization that you work for? Yeah, so I am a state policy manager at Brady, which is the nation's oldest gun violence prevention organization. And we have taken a unique approach to freeing America from gun violence by first changing the industry through addressing the supply side of gun violence um, by holding gun sellers accountable and ensuring that we stem the flow of crime guns into our communities. Second, we're changing the culture through working with icons and influencers to change public perception and social behavior and influence responsible gun ownership. And then third, and this is where I come in, um, changing the laws. So at the state, local, and federal level, I work specifically on our state policy team and focus my work in about seven states, though we work in 17 states total. We also have a federal policy team and then a couple of programmatic arms who are doing really incredible work. One of those is called End Family Fire. That's Mm -hmm. focused on safe storage in the home. Um, And the other is the Combating Crime Guns Initiative, which gets more at that supply side issue that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, sounds like really broad reaching there and uh, in terms of in terms of your scope trying to attack all the different aspects of this problem definitely but you know working for an organization that's trying to address what seems to be this unending crisis has to be challenging i mean especially with yet another event here uh recently so what what would you say or you were describing your role there your favorite parts as well as biggest challenges in working for that type of organization? Definitely. I'll start with challenges so we can end on a on a positive note. Okay. Um, we are up against the gun industry, which is without a doubt one of the most powerful machines in this country mm. that has spent decades funneling billions of dollars into this crisis that is now the number one killer of American children. They've convinced millions of Americans that the only way they can feel safe in their homes is by owning a gun. Mm. Um, And frankly, we simply cannot keep up from a financial perspective um, with this lobby, with this machine. Um, And so this is a, a not so subtle plug to support um, whomever it might be your favorite GVP gun violence prevention organization, literally Mm. every dollar counts. Um, But also to think about, how intentionally this American crisis has been created by the gun lobby. The second sort of major challenge I would say is that this is such a deeply emotional issue. We 
we're working with tragedies every day and there's so much hope within that, but it's impossible to be so heavily in the work and not have it affect your mental health. Brady, I think really recognizes this and offers support to all of us, but it is a daily practice of maintaining self-care and ensuring that I'm not becoming, you know, numb to the devastating reality of the work we do because that is what fuels us every day. And I'll use that to go into sort of some of my favorite parts of the work. Everyone I work with is so incredibly passionate about the issue. Brady is founded by survivors and so many of our staff members, stakeholders, folks we work with on the ground are survivors that I don't have to look far for inspiration or a reminder of why we're doing the work we're doing. And so to have that sort of constant common mission is something that makes the the really hard both you know intellectually and emotionally that really hard work feels so much more doable to have that sort of common north star at all times mm. and then put simply we make stuff happen we've passed more than 35 bills this year at the state level with more still making their way through legislatures that is millions of lives made safer as a direct result of the work we've done and when I say the work we've done, you know, I'm on our policy team. It takes an absolute village. We have incredible organizers, our development team funding our work, our grassroots organizations across the entire country. You know, our legal department is supporting us. The organization is rallied around this this one single issue. And I feel really lucky to be on the policy team where we see the actual movement of bills. but everyone in this organization is unified around pushing for this purpose of freeing America from gun violence. And so to be able to be on the policy team and see the work happen, see the the, the benefit of the work we're doing is really special. And the last thing I'll say is that when these tragedies occur, like in Maine last week, I think there's a feeling, and I remember this so distinctly from before starting working at Brady, of helplessness and hopelessness when these frankly preventable tragedies occur. And when these happen, we get to put our heads down and get to work, which I think really helps to mitigate those feelings of hopelessness because our purpose is only made bigger when we have these crises that we have to work towards solving. Yeah. And I know that you were you were mentioning there the different things that you're doing uh, from the from the policy team and talking about different crises. Yeah, again, like with what with what just happened in Maine. What do you think that the response to those events should be, and what you were talking about being preventable? What can be done differently this time, if anything, that can prevent it from happening again and talking about a state like me and how do you tailor that response to a state such as theirs that has no red flag laws and generally looser restrictions on guns? So I think you're asking a really good question and there are sort of two answers that are related there. We see these tragedies occur and completely understandably there is so much focus on the communities where it happens. And in the states where the tragedy occurs, we often see phenomenal change in the legislature. We see policies react and meet the moment. However, 
it should not take something like what happened in Lewiston happening in your own state to take action. So in this moment, we desperately need legislators around the country to understand that they could be Lewiston if they do not have laws in place that are proven to save lives. And so the focus, without a doubt, should be on Maine right now. We're already seeing legislators step up and, and put the work in in Maine. In addition to that, we need to see that same desperation in every community to protect constituents to protect community members. And so one thing I'll say there is that this sort of feeling of hopelessness and a feeling of why aren't my legislators doing more? Why isn't my state safer? That's a great place to get involved. And I'll say it doesn't have to be with Brady. It can be in whatever capacity feels right, but talk to your legislators, talk to your neighbors, your community members, your school board to understand how you can make your community safer because individual voices make a huge difference in this movement. The second part of that question is getting into the policy and the nitty gritty because there are really concrete evidence-based examples of ways we can avoid situations like this. The first thing I'll say is that the conversation surrounding mental health and gun violence is already so fraught. So we avoid using language like red flag laws. It's especially complicated in Maine when what they currently have is a yellow flag law. And so, you know, it makes sense. It's easy to compare yellow to red, but we prefer to use the term extreme risk protection orders or ERPOs. And in short, an ERPO, and and I I will say an ERPO is a red flag law, just semantically using red flags often further stigmatizes those in a mental health crisis. And so we we lean towards using the term ERPO. But in short, it allows law enforcement or family members, it's different in every state, to petition a court to temporarily remove firearms from a person who poses a risk of harm either to themselves or others. And often those around a person are the best suited to see those warning signs. We now know that happened time and again with the shooter in Maine, first his family and then colleagues and friends, we know that 42% of mass shooters exhibit warning signs. And so ERPOs are a tool where if you notice those warning signs, you can then follow a civil proceeding to remove, to, to have firearms removed from that person's home until they're out of that period of crisis. And so in Maine, Unfortunately, an ERPO could have made a huge difference. Law enforcement would not have or would have had options um, when they were presented with the concerns uh, from family members. And we've seen how incredibly impactful ERPOs are. One study in California found that it has a slightly different name, but their ERPO found that between 2016 and 2018, 21 out of 159 of the granted protection orders. So, um, you know, a a judge determined that, yes, those firearms should be removed from the home, that 21 out of 159 prevented a potential mass shooting. Hmm. That could have been a catastrophic loss of life and impact on those communities that did not happen because of the law in place. Right. And so I think, you know, that 21 states have extreme risk protection orders. It's something that we know, you know, it's sort of bread and butter for all of the national groups who we work alongside on the ground to pass policies. And so that definitely is the first answer for Maine. 
The two other um, policies I would mention specifically are universal background checks, which um, would require a background check to be conducted even during private sales, which closes a loophole that many um, who otherwise would not pass background checks take advantage of, which is buying from a private seller, either online or at a gun show. And so requiring background checks in all aspects of gun purchases makes people safer. And then the third, which is sort of what we hear most frequently and won't be a surprise, is an assault weapons ban. Mm. To me, it's simple. There is no place for weapons of war on our streets. Yeah, all of that definitely makes sense and is concrete action steps that can be when people ask, like I was doing there, of of what can be done. There, There are some ways to address it. Looking specifically to your background and your your journey here early in your career, I know that you've gone from working for a consulting firm and uh, doing that during and after earning your MPA to now working in the nonprofit sector. So can you share what led you to make that switch and how has your MPA helped in the work that you're doing now? Yeah, so I actually think it makes sense to take a step back prior to working at the consulting firm Mm. to sort of explain the trajectory. So right out of college, out of undergrad, I was a high school teacher in Idaho. I taught um, at a very small rural high school and thought I wanted to be a career teacher. That was sort of my passion and thought was my direction. And while in the classroom, witnessed on a daily basis, all of these systemic factors working against my students being successful in the classroom, Hmm. such as food security, unstable home lives, threats of violence, to name truly just a few, um, and realized that while I was supposed to be teaching them science, and that was supposed to be my main priority, their chances of success were so diminished because of these policy-based factors out of their control And so that was sort of a seed that was planted for wanting to step out of the classroom and pursue my master's in public administration to understand that policy perspective for how to mitigate a lot of these systemic injustices these kids were facing. And I'll say too, my time in the classroom, I didn't know it then, but really planted the seed for the work I do now. We had one particularly traumatizing active shooter drill. Um, Mm. They don't tell teachers when they're happening because they want to make sure we're training appropriately, which I understand. But huddling in a dark supply closet with 32 ninth graders, being only 23 myself, and not knowing if this drill was real or not, it just came washing over me that there was something really seriously wrong about Mm. how we were approaching the issue of safety in schools. That was only cemented when later that year I started teaching an elective course that was sponsored by FEMA. The impetus for bringing the class to rural communities was specifically to give students training to stop the bleed so that they could help their classmates until first responders arrived on the scene in the case of an active shooter. It gave students incredible skills. Again, in that case, we were really, really treating the symptom and not the cause. Right. And I think it's so important to elevate the fact that teachers and students are facing these very real, very present threats and reminders of gun violence every single day and in a unique and truly unacceptable way. Hmm. So all of those experiences 
took me eventually, I, uh, while getting my master's originally after I left the classroom, I worked four part-time jobs, including still teaching at the high school and being an adjunct professor. None of that I would recommend the four jobs mm-hmm. thing. Um, and was really excited when I found the firm I worked for, which is an education policy consulting firm. Um, and, you know, it was interesting. You point out that it, it's in, it was in the private sector. Um, I was getting my MPA at the time. And so it was an interesting shift. But the mission of the firm was to make educational systems more accessible and equitable for students. And so despite it not being in the sector I necessarily anticipated, um, it aligned with my belief for what policy should be doing for students to give them the opportunities they deserved. Um, And on top of that, our clients at the firm were either nonprofits or state education agencies. And so I felt like I was still getting that public sector experience and applying what I was learning in my master's program while working in the private sector. But so throughout my time, I was um, there for about 18 months. I realized over time that I wanted to be on the nonprofit side of the work we were doing. I thought the ability to really specialize and have that um, more nuanced impact was really uh, attractive to me. And so with the seed planted back in the classroom that gun violence was something I felt really passionate about. Um, When I saw the posting for the Brady position, it just made complete sense. Um, And I completely embarrassed myself by telling my now, uh, you know, chief officer of policy and programs that I was interviewing for my dream job. Um, but it was true. And and I couldn't really contain that excitement. And the cool thing is that it it is still true. I feel so lucky every day to get to do what I'm doing. And so a sort of bumpy trajectory in and out of different sectors and different fields, um, I think brought me to this place where I am able to combine a lot of those unique experiences at this uh, sort of really specific policy level. Gotcha. And your MPA has helped you in uh, in doing that work? Or how's have you seen the impact of that degree there? Absolutely. Using the skills I learned in my MPA program to analyze policy, to assess the efficacy of programs at local, state, federal levels, those are things that I do every single day in my job. And so having the opportunity to learn about real world applicable work while in the classroom with lower stakes, I think is a really valuable way to then scale that outside of the classroom and in a position where you are actually having a real impact on policy. Um, And I'm really grateful for the specific program I was in was really focused on the local and state level. And so now a lot of what I do is on that state side, but I'm so aware of the implementation aspect. And that's something that helps me, um, I think, be more informed as we're making these policy decisions and working with stakeholders is remembering sort of those skills and lessons I learned in my MPA um, about how intertwined everything is at every single level of government. Well, thanks for sharing that and giving those insights. You know, I'm currently in the midst of earning my MPA myself. And that's something I, I think about is trying to connect the real world with what I'm learning in the classroom and trying to see how I can engage in the eventual areas I want to be in uh, with my 
current learnings, you know, getting through the different courses that are in the MPA program. Uh, Congratulations. I think you've made a really good choice. I think MPAs are certainly lesser known uh, than mm -hmm. MBAs. And I think we need a lot more MPAs. I think the skills you'll learn are just invaluable. Yep. I am. I am uh, <laughs> about halfway through. So working, working through it. But uh, there is one question that I ask all of my guests, um, which is if there were one thing about either life or work or any other area that you want to share with your fellow young adult audience, what would that one thing be? I love this question. And I feel like I only discovered this answer sort of in the last year, but I would say dig into your local community. I don't think it matters what it is, whether it's a running club, volunteer work, joining a young professionals board. I do think that having some sort of giving back involved helps with, with this, but I lived in Idaho for four years. And aside from my friends, I felt really disconnected from the community. You know, it was just a place I lived. I didn't feel really a part of it. And I've been in Richmond, Virginia for a little over a year now hmm. and feel so much more deeply connected to my community. And I think a large part of that is having joined two young professional boards when I moved here um, mm -hmm. that connect me with nonprofits in the Richmond area and allow me to really feel like I'm an active member of my community. And that experience has had sort of this trickle down effect into so many other aspects of my life. It's really fulfilling to feel that you're connected to the place where you live in more than sort of a utilitarian way. Um, and, you know, if, if you need sort of a, a professional spin to it, it's a really cool way to weave the work that you do into, you know, an extracurricular activity, no matter what that work is. Um, and so I wish that I'd been given the advice to invest in community itself beyond just social opportunities right out of school and couldn't recommend more highly trying to find a junior board, trying to find a running club, whatever it might be, to really dig in um, and and feel a part of the fabric of your community. Yeah, depending on where you're at, there are certainly a lot of opportunities to get involved. I know here where I'm at in the D.C. area, you've got everything from your young nonprofit professionals, communities to more issues uh, specific communities, your political communities, your local government uh, areas that you can get involved with. So definitely, I guess you'd probably share the same that uh, being a part of those exposes you to a lot of things that you may not have otherwise and kind of gives you experience and insight, especially here earlier in your career as you're trying to figure out what you want your pathway to look like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's just about all the time I've got for you here, but how can people best connect with you if they'd like to hear more about your story? Yeah, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, Liddy Ballard, uh, or email me at lballard at bradyunited.org. I would love to chat. Gotcha. Well, thanks for sharing those. And as always, I will have the links to both your LinkedIn profile and email down in the show notes. People want to connect. Uh, but yeah, thanks definitely for coming on the show here today and sharing your story and about the work you're doing at a time that uh, it's unfortunate that the 
the issue that you're working on is on our minds yet again here, but good to hear from someone that uh, has been and continues to, to work on resolving it. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. I appreciate it. And I would just say that in these terrible times, there's a lot of hope and a lot of ways to get involved. So don't hesitate to do so. There certainly are. All right. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. Hopefully you learned something new about the work happening in the nonprofit sector and were inspired to get involved. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening from. If you want to learn more about today's guest, how you can contact them and explore the organization they work for, check out the show notes. That'll do it for this episode. Come back next time to hear from yet another aspiring young